What's up, guys? Rachel Lindsay here, and I am teaming up with your favorite Ringer podcasters to deliver the Bravo drama and news that you've been craving on Morally Corrupt. It's the show about all things Bravo, from the housewives to summer house and everything in between. We'll be mentioning it all every week. Check it out on Spotify and TheRinger.com. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today's episode is about the mystery of the missing baby formula. Nationwide, more than 40% of infant formula is out of stock on shelves. That is a 20-fold increase since the first half of 2021. In many states, like Texas and Tennessee, more than half of the needed formula is gone. And this is happening as parents are understandably freaking out, desperately hoarding what infant formula they can find. And retailers like Walgreens and CVS and Target are now limiting purchases. Yes, it is 2022 in America, and we are rationing essentials for babies. As I recently explained in a piece for The Atlantic, this might seem like a complicated story, and in some ways it is kind of a complicated story, but I think you can basically boil down this mystery to three factors. Three. Number one, a bacteria. Number two, a virus. And number three, a trade and regulatory policy. So number one is the easiest part to explain. That's the bacteria. What happened was following the death of several babies from a rare infection, the FDA investigated Abbott, which is a major producer of infant formula in the U.S., and they discovered traces of a nasty bacteria in their Michigan plant. They recalled several brands of formula. They shut down the plant, advised parents not to buy the stuff that was coming out of it, basically closed that node in the supply chain. So recalls suck, but they're also pretty common. Like thousands of drugs, thousands of products are recalled every single year, and they don't typically create a meltdown like we're experiencing right now. So something else seems to be going on. That leads us to number two, the virus. 
right? The pandemic itself has clearly snarled all sorts of supply chains, whether it's electronic chips or cars or some furniture you were trying to buy six months ago and it still hasn't been delivered to your living room. It's hard to think of a market that it's yanked around more than formula. Like in the spring of 2020, parents hoarded formula, you know, like they hoarded uh, paper towels, toilet paper. Then as they, you know, worked their way through the stockpiles, sales fell a lot. And so if you're a formula maker and you're sort of, you know, reading the signals of consumer demand, it's very confusing because demand surged in 2020 and then it pulled back in 2021. It surged again in 2022. That is added to the problem of the shutdown plant. But that still doesn't explain what's going on. Again, formula isn't just like a little bit down. In many states, half of it is gone. Like, how is the market for this incredibly important product to feed our fragile infants so incredibly fragile itself? That brings me to today's guest, Scott Linsicum. Scott is the Director of General Economics and Trade for the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank. Now, I myself am not a libertarian. I tend to prefer more regulation and more protection than, than the typical libertarian. But as you're going to see, and as I myself kind of have to admit, the reason the U.S. doesn't have enough baby formula in this country for its parents is that America's very reasonable instinct to protect babies has become an unreasonable protectionist trade and regulatory policy. Like Basically, we told the world we didn't want their stupid formula, and now we're getting exactly what we asked for. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Scott Linsicum, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Let's start with the pandemic. Scott, how did the pandemic itself prove to be the perfect storm when it comes to gunking up the supply of baby formula? I mean, look, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is just the pandemic doing its thing, like it's done with all sorts of supply chains all over the world. Um, when you have demand collapsing and then supply trying to follow suit and then demand coming back in unexpected ways and countries shutting down and reopening and states doing different things, and then there being labor shortages and trucking shortages and all sorts of crazy stuff in the market, it's inevitably going to redound to manufacturing, whether it's abroad or here, uh, little known fact is that the global supply chains and the domestic supply chains are actually suffering from a lot of the same things. We always think about the ports, but there's a lot of domestic stuff that's suffering as well. So look, um, baby formula in a lot of ways was just like all other parts of, of manufacturing. Um, Chips you know, and cars and all these other things that are that we famously right, had and shortages you can't find of Workers aren't showing up. And then the next thing you know, you know, your packaging suppliers shut down and it's it's a giant mess, right? So, so there's that. And then... Uh, adding insult to injury is this recall. Um, a major uh, FDA or FDA approved supplier, Abbott, uh, in Michigan, um, had a plant shutdown because uh, some infant formula was found to have actually, uh, we think, uh, harmed several babies. Um, the connection is unclear, but that's okay. That's for the lawyers to figure out. Uh, but that caused the the facility to shut down. And that really kind of, I think, added a lot of fuel to the fire. So you had the normal supply chain stuff and then this recall. And that has really fueled 
um, a serious shortage in in the market and leaving us now to try to scramble to pick up the pieces and 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 fill these gaps um, as best we can. Right. And and with the pandemic, it's really tough because at the beginning of COVID, you had all of these parents hoarding baby formula because they were afraid that baby formula was going to run out like toilet paper, like paper towels, like everything else was running out. You went into the grocery stores and the, sh- and the aisles were cleared. They said, oh my God, this is going to happen for our baby's food. They hoarded baby formula in 2020. Then what happened? They had a lot of excess baby formula, so they didn't need to buy as much in late 2020, early 2021. Suppliers, people manufacturing all this stuff, all this all this baby powder, excuse me, all this uh, baby formula say, you know, well, obviously there's a pullback in demand. We don't need to make as much. And then what happens early this year for a variety of reasons the demand for baby formula comes back and suppliers aren't yeah. ready for it on top of this really catastrophic shutdown of Abbott Laboratories. Yeah. But what if and you jump right on that? No, I'd say, you know, the other thing that I think is critical is that we we stopped having babies at the beginning of the pandemic, and then we suddenly started having babies again, um, which again, which adds even more uncertainty and to this kind of these market gyrations. And then, like you said, um, look, I, I having been a parent of an infant uh, who needed baby formula, let me tell you, you do kind of freak out when you can't find the right product. And so there also has been just some natural psychological element hoarding of stuff. And it's really, that is, is certainly uh, adding insult to injury in a lot of this stuff. But um, it's not merely the pandemic doing its thing in this case. That's right. And we're going to get to the policy, which is really the meat of this episode. We're going to get to the policy in like 15 seconds. But just to point something out, I know lots of people that I've been talking to, texting to within my family, friends, telling me that they are strategizing with their family to buy up as much baby formula as possible and ship baby formula to the parents in their family to make sure they don't run out of formula. What does this do? it exacerbates the shortage because when parents or when anyone in any inflationary environment, in any shortage environment, sees that there's a possibility of the thing that you need running out, then you buy as much as possible in the short run. When it's something like baby formula, you buy even more of it because this isn't just like toilet paper. It's not just something that's ni- that's that's important to have around. This is the life and death of an infant. So the psychology of shortages is definitely a major factor here. But it is not the only factor. It is not the only factor. Another factor is policy, trade policy and regulatory policy. That to me is the deep story of the infant formula shortage. And that's a story that I want you to help me tell today. So. Why don't we start at 30,000 feet? Give me the Scott Lincecum thesis statement on trade and regulatory policy for infant formula in the United States of America. So in a normal market, when you have these types of demand and supply gyrations, um, the market will adjust. You're going to have prices are going to rise and supply is going to fill the gaps really, really quickly. The problem we have is that we've essentially... uh, created a tariff and regulatory wall around the United States that has dramatically restricted the amount of additional supply that can enter from large global producers of infant formula in Europe or New Zealand or Canada or elsewhere. Um, You couple those regulatory barriers with stuff going on in the U.S. market related to domestic production, uh, government policies that have actually contributed to concentration in the market um, and controlling prices that have 
further restricted the ability of the market to adjust in times of crazy shocks like this. And so thanks to good old government policy, things are a lot worse than they really needed to be. So we have tariffs on baby formula that comes into the country. We discourage our trading partners to trade us baby formula. And within the U.S., within the captive market of domestic producers of baby formula, we constrict the number of companies that can actually supply young parents. Let's go through these one by one, but jump jump in there if you want. No, no, I was just going to say, it's basically the perfect storm for a for shortages. Um you are you've created a highly concentrated price regulated market um that discourages investment and market entry and oh by the way you create a tariff wall uh, right around the country to prevent any imports from satisfying the gaps that eventually exist. So it's it really is it's like somebody created um a shortage in a lab um unfortunately. So let's jump into it. Yeah. Let, let's let, let's go into let's start with trade policy. And I know that the concept of trade policy is likely to make some people's eyes glaze over. So let me ask this question uh, in as as uh, relatable a way as I possibly can. Here's a simple question: Europe seems pretty good at feeding babies. Like in general, babies do pretty well in Europe. Why is it so hard for American parents to import European baby formula? Right. Well, there's we've we've established a, a two-step uh, process or wall uh, that that European producers have to overcome, and they they just aren't going to really do this. So the first uh, wall is the tariffs, and they're actually worse than normal tariffs, um, due to a long. And just a quick econ 101: tariffs are taxes on imports. Yes. End of econ 101. Go right back. Let's go. Good. Um, so, due to longstanding government protection of the dairy industry, um, the we have very high tariffs and what we call tariff rate quotas on imports of all sorts of dairy products. Infant formula traditionally is a dairy product. Um, so, in the infant formula category, you have a tariff that applies to imports of from a formula from most places. Um, and once you hit a certain quantity of imports, then you have an additional tariff on top of that. So that, that extra quota step adds all sorts of additional uncertainty. Not only are you paying a higher tariff price, higher tax, but you don't know when that tariff's going to kick in. If you're an importer and you're trying to plan, ah, to heck with it. I'm just going to buy domestic, right? So that's the first issue. Um, the this Now, in a normal operating market, however, when prices rise due to uh, main, you know high demand and limited supply, uh, producers are going to enter that market even with the tariffs, even with some of these quota issues, because look, they're going to be able to profit take. Good old profit taking is is good, right? Uh, we libertarians, I have to say that every episode or, you know, I, I get like my dot, my pay dot. Uh, <laughs> but the, so so in a normal market, you're still going to enter. Uh, you're you're going to either they're going to pay the tariffs or the importers will pay the tariffs because they can they can make it up on the price side. The problem is that the FDA regulations applying to apply to imported baby formula are so strict that really no one is willing to go through the the registration process, the labeling requirements, the nutrient requirements. The scooper has to be a certain size. You have to uh, agree to FDA inspections and then annual inspections thereafter. Nobody's going to be willing to do that um, because then you have the tariff 
And let's face it, the United States is not a really growing baby market. I, I wish it were. I wish we were having more babies, but we're not. So producers abroad are just simply not going to make the expense of going through all that FDA stuff, paying those tariffs, establishing sales and distribution channels in the United States, doing all of that kind of marketing and the rest that that foreign companies like, say, Mercedes or whatever do in the United States to, to sell their product, right? So as a result... 98% of the U.S. market is satisfied by American producers, according to the White House. Our, our numbers at Cato are a tiny bit different, but it's it's insignificant. Um, and you only are seeing a little bit of supply from Mexico, who uh, actually has uh, a tariff-free access to the U.S. market for certain products and certain quantities. So look, uh, free trade works, right? Uh, we, we didn't apply tariffs. Next thing you know, Mexico, um, some... Some folks that produce in the United States invested in Mexico, and they they shipped it here. Mexico's a large uh, uh, importer, I mean, relatively, uh, but basically nowhere else. Um, and that creates all sorts of, again, supply problems when domestic production shuts down. Right. So what's really important to say here is that there are a lot of American parents that on Facebook groups and online really want European baby formula. Maybe they're just Europhiles, maybe they just really like goat's milk, Like, but there's a lot of American parents that are trying to order this stuff. And what's, what often happens is that U.S. customs agents see shipments at the border. So Americans are trying to get more European baby formula into the States, but the government won't let them. And it's interesting, because I, I looked into this when I was writing my article, and there are studies that have found that European formula meets practically all of the FDA's nutritional guidelines, and even in some ways might even be better than American formula because the EU bans certain sugars and they have a higher lactose share in their formula, which might be good for babies. But the problem is that due to all these technicalities that you said, right, the FDA wants to be very, very jealous, very, very careful about the baby formula it lets into the US. So there's very strict guidelines about the labeling and the size of the scooper and all this stuff. And those are the guidelines that Europe doesn't meet. So even though the underlying product is basically, it's obviously healthy, there's not an epidemic of babies dying in the Netherlands, and it obviously meets most of America's nutritional guidelines, it can't be sold here because the FDA can't have the same labeling requirements and can't essentially execute the same kind of uh, quality checks that it could on a place like Abbott, which it shut down when it saw the bacterial infection. So for all these reasons, we have this just bizarre situation where Europe has all of this baby formula that it could have been selling us for years and years and decades and decades, and it hasn't been doing so. You know, you might also think, what about Canada, our largest trading partner in the world? They're, they're right over the border. They make a bunch of milk. They could clearly make a bunch of baby formula. What's happened with our trading relationship with Canada in the last, say, five or 10 years that we should know about in this baby formula shortage story? Yeah, and that's and where things get really egregious is that even in our free trade agreements, I did scare quotes for those of you who can't see me, uh, even in our free trade agreements, we have major restrictions on dairy, including infant formula. And in fact, the Trump administration um, in fact, it's part of the like loan holdout term uh, in the USMCA, President Trump's NAFTA replacement, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, great name, um, was uh, ensuring additional restrictions on potential infant formula from Canada. So essentially, any infant formula sent from Canada to the United States over a certain quantity is subject to a really high 
export tax that, uh, administered by the Canadians. Uh, the Trump administration did this because uh, of a Chinese company was investing in Canada, a very large dairy-producing nation. China is a growing baby formula market. This company saw the opportunity to use you know, Canadian milk and Canadian facilities and quality and ship it back home, so they wanted to invest in Canada. American dairy farmers, however, um, were very concerned that that potential export capacity was going to end up in the United States in their captive market. So they lobbied and with the help of the Trump administration and put in these import caps in place. But critically, this not only is an import restriction, but it's really an investment uh, dis inhibitor, right? Uh, the express goal of the U.S. dairy industry and the Trump administration was to prevent additional investments in Canada so that there could be a, a new infant formula capacity online. Because again, that threatens their bottom line in, in the United States. So um, Canada's not a huge player in the infant market, infant formula market, but um, we were essentially ensuring that they never would be, which, you know, let's face it, quite frankly, it'd be pretty nice if they were a little bigger right now. Yeah, I mean, it's really, I, I, I don't want to be in the position of saying that today's infant formula shortage is Donald Trump's fault. Nonetheless, what happened, what was it, f three years ago, four years ago, when, when, when this precise episode uh, took place, basically Trump, hand in hand with the Dairy Farmers of America, sees China investing in the Canadian infant formula market, and basically steps up the discouragement of infant formula coming into the U.S. in order to punish the Chinese investment. And you sent me to a CBC, a Canadian um, uh, journalistic report on this that basically said Canada's capacity to produce baby formula will probably be indefinitely hampered because of the Trump administration's punishment of this Chinese investment. So here in the Americas, not just the United States, but all of North America, we have purposely constricted baby formula production because, in part, of our fears of Chinese investment in the Canadian market. So it's just like, it's, it goes to your perfect storm. It's, we're not just discouraging uh, a Chinese investment, we're not just discouraging European imports, we're discouraging basically anyone from possibly making baby formula outside of these FDA-approved domestic suppliers. And that, that's the next part of the story that I wanna get to, but why don't you just comment on what I just said? No, and I think the other really key point is that this is all part of kind of the longstanding U.S. protection of our dairy industry. Um, if you, I mean, go back, I found a Cato paper from like 2002 writing about all of these. We have not only tariff protection and these tariff rate quotas and the rest, but we have all sorts of price supports and subsidies and the rest. Uh, dairy is, if you have like a Mount Rushmore of American protectionism, you're going to have like steel and ships and sugar and probably dairy is your fourth presidential head on that mountainside. Um, and so it really is, it's it's unfortunate but unsurprising that we're in the position we're in and that the dairy industry was lobbying for those new protections and using this kind of anti-China sentiment in the Trump administration and in the United States right now to get what they wanted. So I think we have a pretty good picture now of the trade policy snafus that led us here. Let's talk about the domestic regulation. Scott, what is WIC and why should we know about it? So WIC is a very well-intentioned government program that gives vouchers, cash vouchers to 
parents of infants to buy baby formula. Um, like I said, you, you the even hard, hard to disagree with that one. Yeah. Hard to disagree with that one. Cold hearted libertarians <laughs> like me are like, you know what? Cash for poor babies. Okay, fine. That, fine. that yeah. I'm going to have to say yes to. Else. We'll just, just by the way, just, just, just so we can uh, help place people. WIC actually stands for, it's short for the special supplemental nutrition program for, here's the WIC part, women, infants, and children. And this is a special group within the department of agriculture that, as you said, gives cash to mothers and poor infants. Scott, what could possibly be wrong with this program? Well, there's two things wrong with it. The the first uh, is that WIC started out being a pretty small program, um, but has since ballooned to being about half of the entire U.S. infant formula market. So that creates what we call in economics a monopsony situation, where the government is the dominant consumer and can use that leverage to price take, right? Essentially to negotiate uh, prices that are way below market for whatever product it's consuming, in this case, infant formula. Now, look, that is a great deal for taxpayers. It is not a great deal for producers. Um, Just like a monopoly is good for producers and bad for consumers, monopsony the other way around, good for- Right, yeah, monopoly is one supplier or concentration among suppliers, and monopsony is the opposite. It's concentration among buyers, basically one buyer, the U.S. government. Exactly. So first is just that you have this behemoth in the market and that WIC has become due to years and years and years of expansion. But the second issue is how the WIC system has been designed. And again, I don't think any of this was intentional, but in order to encourage uh, companies to bid on WIC contracts, um, the uh, each state uh, essentially awards a sole supplier contract for baby formula, which essentially means if you win the contract, you're the only WIC provider in the state. Well, why would companies want to do that? It turns out that if you're the WIC provider, you get all sorts of benefits in the non-WIC market, which makes sense. You're going to get shelf placement. You're going to get more prominent, uh, you know, consumers that might sometimes be on WIC and might sometimes not are going to be kind of brand loyal, particularly in infant formula. There's a lot of brand loyalty there. So studies show that when you win a WIC contract, you become basically the dominant producer in the state. So um, the, the government, again, uses its its uh, its consuming, its monopsony power to negotiate these, these very low-priced contracts and producers agree to those because they are going to they're going to win in the non in the non-wit market. The problem, of course, is that this is uh, like really uh, unintentionally designed to limit uh, market entry and investment. Right? You really aren't going to have new startups that are going to be willing to uh, engage in this type of loss-leading activity to, to basically lose money to eventually make money. That's not a great proposition. They're also going to need production capacity to satisfy a massive consumer on day one, right? So that's it's essentially a, a system that is going, going to produce market concentration. You're going to eventually have just a few producers and very little market entry, very few small players, only in niche areas like very kind of high-end designer baby formula market. And in um, fact, this and- is exactly what we see. There's a 2011 analysis by the USDA that reported that just four companies 
account for practically all U.S. formula sales. Abbott, where this bacterial infection was found, Mead Johnson, Perigo, and Gerber. So, you know, it's as if, you know, if if the U.S. had this sort of situation with, say, cars, right? This would be an industry where if you wanted to buy a Mercedes, good luck, it's going to cost $100,000. We discourage car imports from basically every other country. And in the U.S., the only people making cars are, let's just say, Ford and GM. Now, let's say for some reason that Ford, because they, you know, screwed something up in Detroit or in some other factory in Georgia or whatever. Now, Ford is not going to make cars anymore for the next six months. No more Fords. There would be an unbelievable shortage of cars. And that's essentially the situation that we have here through a variety of tariffs and quotas and direct discouragement from the U.S. government for foreign or international investment in our trading partners. We've discouraged all of this formula import while at the same time purposely concentrating the production of formula within the country, meaning that we are exquisitely sensitive to failures in that system. Exactly. We had a failure in Michigan, and that is why we are where we are. Yeah, and, and, and adding to the problem was that we had a failure at the largest WIC contractor of all in Abbott. So Abbott has apparent about 31, I think, con- of the WIC contracts out of 50. Um, and, and Abbott was doing voluntary recalls, not only from the Michigan product, but really just trying, you know, just trying to figure out what the heck's going on. And and it was it was kind of seizing up Abbott product beyond that Michigan production. At the same time, USDA, which manages the WIC program, was issuing waivers to WIC customers. That makes perfect sense. But that's going to put additional pressure on non-Abbott suppliers. And so they're going to be running out trying to find formula, and that's going to put additional pressure on the available supply, which makes, of course, perfect sense. They still need to feed their babies. So it really is like, it really is just a perfect storm for um, a, a shortage and situation that's that's bordering on crisis. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Workday. 
Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. Okay, let me play devil's advocate. Um, Scott, these are babies. They are tiny, fragile, infant babies. We have to protect them. Like the word, the root of protectionism is protect. Who deserves our protection more than America's fragile, helpless babies? We have to do this. Like at Abbott Labs, it turned out, is basically a Petri dish. There's bacteria everywhere. In fact, maybe this proves the FDA should be even more protectionist, that we should be doing like bacterial checks on the weekly in all of these domestic producers. We should basically be spying on them to make sure that they don't put bacteria into uh, uh, infant baby formula. What do you say to that? What do you say that to, to the idea that like, of course we have to be protectionist because this is the most vulnerable group of Americans that there is? Sure. I mean, the most obvious response is that all the protection in the world does you no good if there's no formula on the shelves, right? Um, you know, it's not very safe if a baby can't eat. Um, so uh, that's, I mean, I think that's the most obvious thing is that if you have a system that puts all of our eggs in essentially one basket, um, when that basket breaks, you have uh, huge ramifications for the rest of uh, the, you know, the people needing, needing eggs, needing infant formula. So the, and, and that again, study after study shows, as I've written a bajillion times over the last few years, that the best thing that we can do is supply diversity. You want to have your eggs in a bunch of baskets, right? And, and so the most resilient thing is having global capacity uh, in Canada, in Europe, in New Zealand, in the United States as well, and limiting the barriers uh, between in limiting barriers to trade between those places, so that when there is a problem in one place, the system can adjust, prices can adjust, and you can you can do all that jazz. So that's the first thing. The the second issue, though, is that look, uh, European baby formula is not. This is not from China. This is not. No one is is like out there arguing we should we should be we're dependent on a certain source or a dependent on again china or some sort of uh this is coming this is formula from a very reputable uh regulatory regime um it is coming from one of the world's largest producers and exporters of products so this is product that is good enough not just only for european babies but good for babies all over the world and the same goes for product from new zealand and elsewhere and these are very reputable companies very reputable regulatory regimes um and american parents are not um they're certainly not um a reckless with their babies they're certainly uh able to shop for what they believe is in their best interest. And if they believe that European product that is approved by a separate regulatory regime is where they want to go, well, they should be able to make that choice. It shouldn't be up to just the FDA, right? Um, leaving aside the economic issues, um, it's just simply an issue of um, allowing them to choose their level of risk and to choose their product within, of course, acceptable bounds. One more point to add onto that. 
is that a lot of times when European baby formula is seized at the border and it is investigated, it turns out that some of it is spoiled because it has been illegally transported without the typical temperature checks that you would want to transport formula from the Netherlands. And if we legalized this kind of trade, it would be much less likely that the formula would spoil on its way from, say, Spain to New York. So in a way, a more liberal trading environment would make these kind of imports that are already happening, to be clear, more safe for the parents that demand Western European baby formula for whatever reason. They like the goat milk, they're Francophiles, who who knows? but this is already happening, and it would be safer if we had a more right. liberal trading regime. Yeah, in fact, whole cottage industries had developed around providing like third-party resellers to provide European baby formula uh, because of the demand in the United States. And like you said, I mean, it's, it's it's actually it's a lot like drugs in the sense that you know if you if you create a legal regime, you're going to establish formal distribution channels. You're going to allow for these large uh, manufacturers to have facilities in the United States that are all refrigerated and get supply out quite quickly, all that kind of jazz, right? Um, And uh, you're going to have, there are going to be channels that are able to uh, to surmount some of the potential issues like a label in a foreign language, for example. I've heard that retailers for, for were providing the instructions in English. They were providing conversion charts because the scoopers were the you know different size. So the market can easily surmount those kind of obstacles. What it can't surmount is an, is an FDA and tariff blockade at the border and shipments being seized and moms being treated basically like drug mules. Um, I mean, the stuff that you see on the mommy blogs, I'm now I'm big in the mommy blogs now, um, the stuff you see is really crazy. I mean, you know, just small shipments being seized by customs um, and uh, moms having to hide formula in packages of rice and stuff. I mean, crazy stuff, um, all because we've, um, we're not, we're, we're creating this black market instead of creating a more liberal trading regime. All right, enough problems. Let's talk about solutions. What should the administration do that would help now? And what is it the administration should do that would help in the future? Yeah, so on the administration side, um, the the FDA is the obvious place to start. Um, the There needs to be um, not just the uh, they're doing a little bit around the edges right now in terms of uh, registration and expediting. Well, the FDA just today, we're, we're recording on Tuesday afternoon, just today announced that they're going to make it easier to import some baby formula to ease the shortage. I assume that this is going to include, yeah, this is uh, going to make it easier to import formula from not only Mexico, but also some uh uh, some some European countries as well. So they're they're starting to act on that. Yeah. So so look, you know, to the extent that they can expedite any sort of processing, to the extent with that's consistent with the law, of course, that they can um, uh, act more quickly to get this stuff in. That's great. I also see that they're exercising their quote enforcement discretion related to small shipments or shipments that are just have minor labeling infractions or stuff. Hey, that's all good. What a um, what you know, every little bit helps. Um, it's unfortunately, I think it's just going to be some kind of marginal, right? And we're not really talking about a major fix because if you look at some of the imports that they're now approving, like from Switzerland or Ireland, those are from already FDA approved facilities or registered products. These were imports that were already going to come in. And we know that those import levels are tiny compared to the size of the market. So it's really not clear 
how much this is like in the grand scheme of things that can help. And that's why it really, the, the impetus needs to be um, in Congress to act um, first on the tariffs, um, that ter- Congress has constitutional authority over tariffs. Congress could lift them all tomorrow. Uh, it is a no-brainer for these tariffs to be eliminated, especially given the current political backlash to all this stuff. At the very least, we should change the quota system such that it's a zero rate at the beginning and it's very transparent. Right now, honestly, we've looked at this at Cato. Um, it's almost impossible to figure out how this stuff works. So that's that's a big problem. The other thing is uh, we need to- And move- you're just saying, just to be clear, yeah, what's difficult to figure out about how it works is that say the, 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 the tax on imports might be like 5% for the first 100 bottles, and then it's like 6% for the next 150, and then it's 9.5 for the next 250. And it just keeps changing at certain volume thresholds in such a way that if you are a company overseas looking at this law, you throw up your hands and you're like, my lawyers can't even figure this out. Like, why am I even going to try to sell into this market? This is way too confusing. I'm just going to ship this stuff to New Zealand. And the risk the risk is just too high that you might end up tripping the quota. And then the next thing you know, instead of paying 10%, you were, you're paying 20%. You know, that's a, that's a, a big problem with, with, quotas. Um, The other big thing that Congress needs to get on is some sort of mutual recognition system. Um, We have this already for some uh, pharmaceuticals um, where we basically say, look, if it's a pharmaceutical that's approved by a regulator in Europe or in New Zealand or a couple other places, um, there's a list of Switzerland's another one, um, then it's, it's, it's okay. That's it. We're done. We're going to let that happen. Um, and that's the type of regime we really need to be adopting for infant formula. I mean, I think we need to be adopting it more broadly. Um, these are reputable regulators. They have strong regulatory reputations, and, and the regimes are fine. Um, and again, Americans are are smart enough to make their own choices about the risks they want to assume, and that that's fine. Now, I know the FDA will be kicking and screaming about this type of stuff, but, you know, tack with that. Um, but that's the type of, I think, major change that would really help. Um, the other thing we really need to do is reform WIC. Um, you know, uh, it, it maybe made sense to save taxpayers a few bucks um, in the way that WIC was designed. But given how big the program is and how powerful it is, and given that, quite frankly, this is a pretty tiny market overall, we're not talking about big dollars. Um, at, from my research, it's like $2 billion in annual sales in the United States. I mean, that's like what, like two or three F-35s? I can't, I can't keep track anymore. <laughs> so look, let's just let WIC consumers buy whatever product they want, whether it's domestic, imported, whatever, you got to ditch those sole source contracts and ditch the kind of informal protectionism that exists in this as well. And that will also encourage diversity of supply and a much more stable market in the long term. Because the goal is, sure, we have to muddle through the immediate crisis, uh, but we need to try to prevent another crisis down the road, right? And that's the type of steps that'll help. Right. I mean, look, you you are a libertarian. I am a, I don't know, a liberal who enjoys some libertarian ideas. And certainly in a moment like this, that is basically a five alarm fire for the libertarian fire department to come in and say, hey, this is exactly the fire that we predicted is going to happen. You're the kind of person that I turn to to help explain it. You know, the, the kind of world that I want, the kind of market that I want for a product as important as baby formula is a product with 
a healthy diversity of suppliers that still has something like the WIC subsidies for low-income parents and low-income infants. I know you're not arguing against that, but I think that the subsidy is still an important thing to have. It just allows more trade with trading partners, especially throughout Western and Central Europe, that we know can make this kind of product in a way that is safe and already, in fact, beloved by a lot of American moms and dads. Final question for you, Scott. Um, Look, you're an inveterate globalist. You love free trade. This is an incredible story for the globalist free trade case. Uh, I'm sure there's some listeners, however, who might not like free trade. Uh, you know, And in fact, during the supply chain crunch, there were a lot of conservative populists, a lot of liberals who said, look, I'm very skeptical of globalization. Now, globalization has failed. The U.S. should just make everything here. You heard this from the right with people like J.D. Vance in Ohio. You hear, hear it from the Trumpists. You hear it from people on the left who are like anti-capitalists and are basically like neo-mercantilists. Let's just make everything we want in the United States. What do you say to those people? What is the lesson of the baby formula shortage that we should carry forward? Yeah, I mean, the lesson is that the the nationalists got what they wanted. This is um, the tariffs, the regulatory barriers, the government contracts and the rest. Um, This is exactly the system that a lot of folks have wanted. And now we're seeing just how fragile and brittle it really is. And it just goes to show that, you know, yes, reshoring production can insulate you from external shocks, but it makes you far more susceptible to domestic shocks uh, like a factory shutdown or an earthquake or a freak ice storm in Texas. And at the end of the day, it also makes you poorer and less secure um, overall. And so the best way is not to bring everything back home, but to, sure, you know, encourage domestic production, have a stable and sound tax and regulatory regime, but also open up those borders and allow for uh, diversity of supply, maximizing global capacity so that when times are tough here, uh, we can supplement uh, with foreign product, when times are tough abroad, we can we can export there and so forth, and and allowing and then allowing the system itself to self regulate a lot more than it is right now. Right, we built a system where when Abbott fails, we have nothing to replace it. We could have a system where when the Michigan plant fails, the Parisian plant steps in and ships us a lot of the baby formula that feeds America's infants. Scott Lincecum, thank you very very much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you have a comment, a concern, a question, an idea for a future show, please email us at plainenglish at spotify.com. That's plain, no space, English at spotify.com. 